welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to episode 65 of the Proper Mental Podcast and please excuse my voice in this intro. I've got a bit of a cold. You know when you've got a cold that you feel completely fine but you sound terrible and everyone you speak to is like, oh have you got a cold? Oh I hope it's not COVID and it's really annoying. That's the sort of cold I've got. So please bear with me. I'll keep this intro short and I'll edit out any sniffing and coughing and any horrible noises. But anyway, this is episode 65 and my guest this week is Natasha Devon, MBE. And Natasha is a writer, a speaker, a campaigner, a broadcaster and an activist who has dedicated her life to promoting positive mental health, positive body image and gender and social equality. She's the founder of the Mental Health Media Charter, which scrutinises the way that the media report on mental health. She works closely with loads of mental health related organisations and charities. She presents a weekly show on LBC Radio and she's written several mental health related books. And in 2015, she was appointed MBE for her services to young people. And I'm really excited about this episode. It felt like for me personally and for Proper Mental as like a little project that this was a really big episode to have because Natasha Devon, her voice has been at the forefront of the mental health conversation forever, you know, for a long time. And she's done as much as anyone to change how how mental health is thought about, how it's talked about. Um, she really has done incredible work and she's someone I very much admire and I very much respect. And it was wonderful to chat to her. And we talk about all the different things that she does. We talk about her work in schools and how she kind of bridges the gap between the pupils, the teachers and the parents. We talk about advocacy. We talk about how the mental health conversation has changed. We talk about being woke. We talk about public speaking and anxiety and all sorts of stuff. We talk about a new book she's got coming out in the summer, which is called Toxic and it's fiction. So we start talking about how mental health is portrayed in fiction and all the nuances that come on with that. And it's just a really great conversation in general. I enjoyed it very, very much. I do have to say I was a little bit nervous for this one just purely because I just have so much uh, respect for Natasha and part of her job is interviewing and talking to people and I always do feel a bit nervous when I speak to people who have been doing what I'm trying to do for a long time but I've got to say Natasha was lovely she was so nice and she made me feel really chill and you can hear me kind of relaxing as the conversation goes on so that was really nice and if you'd like to learn more about Natasha and all the different things she does if you go to natashadevon.com and it's got links there for the books. It's got links there for the media charter and all the different things that she's involved with. And there are links there to her social media as well. All the usual stuff for me. If you want to catch up with me via the website, via the email, propermentalpodcast.com or at propermentalpodcast on social media. And of course, if you could rate, like, subscribe, share, tell your brother, tell your sister's dog, tell your nan's carer, tell absolutely everyone about the Proper Mental Podcast. It would be very much appreciated. Anyway, here we go. This is episode 65 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Natasha Devon. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Hello, 
So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Natasha Devon. How are you, mate? I'm good. Thank you. I just got back from, I went to my parents live out in the country for um, a couple of days. So I'm super relaxed. I'm not really sort of firing on all cylinders. So I might take a while to answer your questions. Oh, that's fine. No problem at all. Are you kind of... um... Are you trying to uh, reclaim a bit of energy after last week? Because as we record this, we're just off the back of Children's Mental Health Week. So I'm assuming that that was a busy time for you, Natasha. It was. I was in seven schools over five days last week. And then I I work at LBC at the weekends as well. So usually because I work Saturdays, I try and take a day in lieu during the week so that I, I still end up having a couple of days off. But last week that did not happen. Um, so I, yeah, I went and my mom was literally waiting with, you, you know, she said, I've run your bath and she, she was there with like a gin and tonic. <laughs> Just <laughs> go blur. Oh, perfect. That's exactly what you need, right? Yeah. Exactly what you need. Yeah. It's probably a really good um, place for us to start actually, Natasha, with your work in schools, because it's a very unique thing that you do. How do you describe it? Um, it's a combination of delivering education and research, and, and those two things have a symbiotic relationship. So what I do is that I go into about three schools a week, usually, and I deliver talks, but I also do focus groups with 14 to 18-year-olds and ask them about what's missing from their personal health and social education, and also what their day-to-day mental health challenges are, what are they struggling with. And then based on their answers, I work with a team of experts to create lesson plans on those topics. Oh, wow. Fantastic. I love the um, the research element to it. You know, that must be um, absolutely fascinating. It's uh... Uh, Yeah. And there are some things that you just don't consider, because I think we we get such amnesia about what it was like to be a teenager almost immediately people kind of hit 25 and seem to instantly forget and there are things that they say that you go oh yeah I remember I remember I was very preoccupied with that and yet um, as an adult it just doesn't occur to you so I think it's really important to kind of put their voices at the center of everything yeah, definitely. And I suppose to like to go to them and meet them like in their space to collect that information, because I think often with um, with any sort of group or demographic or whatever, it's really, really easy for people to kind of talk on their behalf. So, yeah. you know, there's nothing worse than someone that would be considered old by young people, even if they're not really that old to yeah. um, to be sort of saying, oh, young people feel this and young people think that. And but mm. if, if you've not been there and spoke to them, well, how do you know? Right. How do you know you're saying the right things and you're, you're covering the right topics? Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's even more true now because of the technical revolution. This current cohort of teenagers were born into a world of Wi-Fi and smartphones and social media. They've never known any different. And therefore, their perspective on those issues is completely removed from anything their parents would think or, or even their older siblings would think. And it's important. And I also think it's important not to even if you do have a really good understanding from from talking to lots of young people to not pretend that you get it. Like I I learned really quickly not to try and be down because any word that I've heard means it's already done the rounds in young people and it's made it into, you know, a a Netflix series. (laughs) That means they've stopped using it. (laughs) So just don't bother. Just be yourself because teenagers have the most finely tuned bullshit detector. They can tell when you're not being authentic. So I just, you know, 
be honest about your level of expertise and what you're bringing to the table and and they appreciate that yeah yeah that's also i suppose like as a as a young person as a teenager part of your job as a teenager is to mistrust adults parents people in like that's the that's the the never-ending cycle right that's what we're supposed to do so yeah that makes perfect sense and it's interesting um what you mentioned there as well about them like being in this new world because i think something again and i'm guilty of this as well is saying it's almost quite patronizing when we say things like you know oh i wouldn't like to be a teenager again the world they have to navigate oh it must be so hard well for them it's just their reality it's not you know particularly easy or hard it is just their experience isn't it and it i often describe it to people our age, I don't know how old you are, but you know, we're the same age, age, Natasha. Okay, great. I'll say, you know, what if I said to you, what impact do you think cars have had on your mental health? That would be a really difficult question for you to answer because they've just always been there. And so that would require you to do probably some research and some really deep thinking. You wouldn't know just off of the the top of your head. And it's the same, I think, with technology and and young people. They'll very often say things like, I feel pressure to conform, pressure to be good at everything, to always look good, to always achieve and to keep up with my peers. And then quite often it's me that will say, do you think trying to navigate an online existence as well as an offline existence is playing into that pressure. And once you've introduced the idea, they go, oh yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't occur to them. Yeah. Cause it's just the norm. Yeah. yeah. That's just how, how things are. Yeah, definitely. How do you, how do you find that um, with teenagers, how they um, their openness towards the conversation of mental health, because it, you know, it's safe to say that when we were that age, it didn't exist. Like it just wasn't a thing. And um, I'm just, I'm interested in that. I was chatting to a guy called uh, Lee Pennington the other day who runs a local uh, young person's mental health charity. And he was, he's been doing it for like over 10 years. And he was saying that, um, we were talking about how the conversations changed over the, those 10 years. And he was saying like, as the conversation has become more commonplace and more acceptable, the pendulum's almost swinging the other way. And we can sometimes sort of band these terms around a little bit too easily. And I was thinking in perspective of young people, obviously they're much better at talking about these things. They're much more used to these terms that we've had to learn, but to them is now just commonplace. But do you find that as well, Natasha, that it's kind of a little bit, we have to just keep an eye on how we apply, but especially like mental health, it's a blanket term and it can mean so many things, can't it? I wrote a whole book about this um, back in 2018, but I think the, the future of the mental health conversation is about greater specificity because um, you wouldn't, if, you know, if I said to you, I've got a physical health problem right now, it would be ludicrous for me to expect you to know exactly what I meant by that. And in just the same way with mental health, there are mental health equivalents of a cold. There are mental health equivalents of diabetes, of a broken leg, of cancer. And so it's really important if, for example, a young person says this is making me anxious, that we don't immediately pathologize that and assume it's a medical problem, but to ask, what is it that this young person is trying to communicate to me and what do do they need? And I, I think you're right that the comfort that a lot of young people feel around discussing mental health means that they're very quick to apply that term. And then there is this gap in understanding between generations of what that actually means. And and sometimes their parents panic and think, oh no, you know, I'm going to have to take them to the doctor. No, ask, you know, what, when you use that word depressed, when you use that word anxious, what, what exactly is it that you're grappling with? So you understand the nature of, of the beast. 
Yeah, sure. I suppose that comes with all of us getting more comfortable having those conversations, isn't it? And just kind of drilling down into it that little bit further and um, yeah, to to understand it. Because you mentioned parents' uh, reaction to that conversation. And I know that you do talks and stuff for parents and teachers mm. as well. Um, is that kind of like bridging the gap, you know, taking the information from the, the young people and, you know, putting it, helping the, the people that support them kind of understand what they're happening because I mentioned before that natural mistrust of mm. people that are like, you know, elder to us or in charge of us for want of a better expression. But do you kind of like fill that, fill that gap, Natasha, between the two? That's exactly what I see my job as, as being. And ideally I would go into a school and give it the exact same information to young people, their teachers and their parents, because then you've got this kind of triangulation of, of that information. They can have discussions about it. I see my job actually very much as starting a dialogue because each community is different. And, and sometimes you'll go into two schools and they'll only be a mile down the road from each other. And they're both state schools and they're both co-ed and ostensibly they've got all of these things in common. And yet the challenges being faced by each community are, are really different. So then they can then tailor the information that they've been given so that it works within the context of, of their community. So I think it's really important that, you know, you, you get parents on board in that process. And it's particularly interesting when it comes to academic anxiety, which is a real issue for young people. And what I found was if you talk to teachers, they say parents are putting too much pressure on their kids. If you talk to parents, they say it's teachers, they're putting too much pressure on my child. And then you talk to the young people and they say, actually, both my parents and my, and my teachers are trying to encourage me to relax and telling me I can only do my best. This is self-perpetuating. It's coming from within me. And I, I think it's so important that you ask everyone because otherwise you won't get a, a kind of clear picture. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So it's actually like a pressure um, from, from themselves. And I suppose, uh, you know, from a young person's perspective, a lot of the people making decisions about, you know, um, in academia, for example, um, haven't been young for a long time, you know, so they're making decisions on we're going to do this in schools, we're going to change these rules, we're going to bring this in, have some more exams, but not taking into account what's happening to the actual people who have to go through that process that they've designed. Well, also, the, the people who are in positions where they are able to influence education policy are by definition the people for whom the current education system works. <laughs> and, and, you know, increasingly that education system is only serving a, a tiny proportion of people, but they're the people who make it to the top of the hierarchy because of the way that the system is designed. So they then get to a position of authority and go, well, it worked for me. Therefore, we're going to do more of the same. Um, and I, I, I remember when I was attempting to work with government, having that conversation. And I think I'm quite unusual unusual in that regard because Govian education policies would be perfect for me because I'm very good at retaining information. I perform very well in exams. And um, so therefore I wasn't talking from personal experience. I was just talking from observing how few people like me there are <laughs> and thinking this is really unfair. Um, and then trying to convey that to, to people um, who were advisors to government or, um, you know, working within the Department for Education was, was absolutely impossible because it didn't match their worldview. Yeah, sure. And I suppose it comes as that plays into the, 
the pressures of society and this way of living in society that really affects people's mental health. And if you're having to live as part of a, like a school system, for instance, you know, if you're someone who's naturally the, that, the current learning style, if that doesn't suit you, then you are going to start thinking that it's you, right? And not the system. We don't realize that there has to be more fluidity to it, I suppose. And that's true of so many different things. Like people think that I am a political activist that just happens to know a lot about mental health. It was actually completely the opposite way around. When I first started doing this job, it was about 2007, I came up with the idea of going into schools. And then I started doing it in 2008. And I was sublimely apolitical, just didn't think about politics at all at that stage. And then the more I traveled around the country and saw how there are these really distinct patterns in the way that mental health issues affect different groups of people, they manifest tends to on average differently in men and women and in um, people of color and white people and in LGBTQ people and straight people and in poor people and rich people. And therefore you go, well, this can't be a, a fault in the individual's brain. These are structural issues. And I, and I realized that I had to start addressing some of those structural issues in order to comprehensively tackle this, this issue of, of mental health. Yeah, that's it. Because the the things we can do for our mental health is so is so varied. We've got so many options once we understand what's actually happening. And you know, maybe a few years ago, there's that traditional thing of saying, you know, I'll oh, just go for a run or go and do some yoga or all that sort of stuff, which is all fantastic self care. You know, it's all brilliant. But if you're having to live in an environment where you don't feel safe, or if you're having to be part of a system that just does not suit you as a human being, well, you know, you can do all the running you like, right? And that's not gonna it's not gonna have that much effect well it's also this idea that people don't know that already and and it's the same with um this you know when people say oh the solution to the obesity crisis is often framed as a crisis is people should just eat less and move more and it's like well do you think that people don't have that information do you not think that perhaps it's a little bit more complicated (laughs) than than that you know it's there are so many psychological and structural and social factors at play here that you have to admire yourself in the nuance or shut up. That's that's my rule. They're the two options. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. That's brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) But where does your particular passion for um, working with young people, um, Tasha, how come you decided to go down into that particular route? Um, I think it, it came initially from my own experience. Um, So I, have a a diagnosis of panic disorder. And I also had an eating disorder in my late teens and early twenties. And my story is not particularly dramatic or entertaining. (laughs) And and actually when I tell my story in schools, which I don't do all the time because it got exhausting, sort of raking over things three times a week, but, um, when I do tell my story that the feedback I get from young people is that was really relatable. You know, we can see going through something like that, but um, the only mental health stories I heard growing up were people almost dying of anorexia or people being sectioned with depression or living on the street because they had addiction issues. And therefore I developed this belief that mental health issues didn't happen to people like me. And so when they did, I was in denial about it for so long and I missed all the signs and I missed so many opportunities to catch it early. And that's what the evidence tells us that the earlier you catch it, 
the easier it is to treat and manage. And, and there were so many missed opportunities before it got to a point where it had completely taken over my life. So I wanted to try and make the, the mental health conversation a little bit more universal. And um, in schools, you've got a captive audience. You know, if, if I'd have said in 2008, oh, I'm doing a talk on mental health in my community hall, about three people would have turned up and they would have been people who didn't need to hear it because they knew it all already. <laughs> you know, but if you go into a school, you know, by definition, you're, you're, you're capturing everyone. And um, sick formers are my favorite. 16 to 18 year olds are great because they're sort of old enough to understand how the world works, but young enough to want it to change. Yeah, they're really open-minded and, and kind of innovative in their thinking. And it's just been, it's been challenging, but such a joy and so fulfilling that it became kind of accidentally my career. It started as a hobby and, and became my career. Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose you must uh, learn uh, just about as much as you're helping people to learn, right? There must be, um, I bet these people say things or uh, the kids you're working with, like have a perspective and you think, oh, that makes like so much sense, you know, really uh, gets you to kind of reflect upon your own thoughts and opinions and stuff. Totally. And the great thing about kind of college age people is they'll say, well, why do we do things like that? And you go, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, uh, because I think the older you get, the more accepting you become of, well, this is just the way things are. And I have to kind of rub along. And then when, when you're at that age, it's this kind of magic age where you, you question everything, but with real insight as, as well. And some of the questions I get asked blow my mind, <laughs> absolutely blow my mind. So it, it keeps my thinking um, kind of broad and, and innovative, I think. Yeah, sure. And it's uh, one thing I wanted to touch on with you as well, Natasha, is because obviously you used to speaking in front of these crowds and stuff like that. And it's something I've heard you say before is that um, despite having an anxiety disorder um, diagnosis, is that you're able to do things that some people can't with regards to like public speaking. And I wanted to touch on that because a lot of the kind of murky water around anxiety is that it's like this completely like crippling thing. But when I heard you say that in a, a quote or on a podcast or something, I really identified with that because there's certain things that I can do that people would be petrified of, but you can flip that round and there's some really basic things that I really, really um, struggle with. So when did you kind of like discover that that was your, I suppose your superpower in a way, Natasha? Yeah, I've got, I, I often say this, my brain is back to front because um, I have been speaking in front of crowds since I was about 10. I, it just doesn't phase me. I remember thinking, I remember being 11 years old and standing in front of my whole school, which was about a thousand people and thinking, this is going to happen and you can either do it well or not do it well. <laughs> Those are your options. And that made total sense to me at, at the time. And I haven't felt nervous about public speaking since I don't, there's no one that intimidates me. Like, you know, I go to the Houses of Parliament and I take on politicians and I'm not um, cowed by, you know, a person's position or, or the circumstances of their birth or, or anything like that. The, the way that my anxiety manifests is, I, get really bad claustrophobia, um, really anxious about sort of things like if a friend hasn't texted, I'll convince myself that I must have done something terrible. Um, I worry about um, the inevitability of death. Um, you know, I fixate on the, the minutiae of being a human. 
and then doing something that would be outside of most people's comfort zone. It's not that it doesn't bother me. I think it's that I'm so used to being scared that it doesn't feel extraordinary to me. Yeah. Just comfortable in that discomfort almost. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's fascinating. I say that all the time. I, you know, if, if you wanted to, you know, if I, I could do, I've done live podcasts and stuff like that. I'm more than happy for my work. I often have to speak in front of groups and workshops and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. But if someone says to me, like, do you fancy going for a coffee? That would be like, <laughs> that would be quite hard work for me to, I know they're going to ask me about me. So rather than this role, I'm comfortable with a role, but when it's actually the stuff about me, that's where I feel a little bit, um, you know, ill at ease discussing mm. and talking about. Yeah. I get that totally. And I also think uh, we were discussing our mutual friend, Claire Easton, and I've, I've talked to her about this quite a lot, that the pandemic really divided us into introverts and extroverts. And for introverts, it was what your brain is telling you anyway, stay home with your hand sanitizers. That's, that's a place of comfort for you. And for extroverts, it was absolutely unbearable. And the challenge now, as we try to transition into the new normal, whatever that looks like, is for introverts to, I suppose, get over that hurdle of when everyone, the state, the scientists, society was telling you to do what felt natural and comfortable for you, but it, pr- it probably isn't healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Finding the the balance between the, between the two. Yeah. I think that would do all of us some good, really. No, no matter which, which camp you fall in to be able to be, do a bit of the other one would be, uh, would be really good. Yeah. Does that serve you well that um, this, your ability to talk and your ability, I suppose, to retain information as well that you mentioned there on your LBC show, which I, I listened to on a Saturday, Tasha. I really, um, I, oh, I do thank enjoy you. it. And um, I was uh, just doing a bit of research for a chat today. I was looking at some, some clips on YouTube and it made me laugh because all the, the headlines on YouTube is all Natasha Devon dismantled caller <laughs> Natasha Devon rips apart caller but like you know you're very very known for your um your views and opinions and you know I think if we were to go down that rabbit hole we'd find we're very aligned with those sorts of stuff um but people kind of phone up specifically to try and um you know to kind of bat some of that stuff away don't they and it that must be a really strange mm-hmm. space for you and your own mental health as well to kind of be constantly viewing all these like really extreme opinions well What I will say is to anybody who is thinking of listening to any LBC presenter is those clips that go up are not representative of the entire show. They, we live in the attention economy, right? So the digital team is picking the most engaging bits of content. So for me, I think that anybody is entitled to have any opinion that they want as long as it's informed. And what I won't allow is somebody to get away with just parroting a soundbite without explaining to me why they think that or saying a a fact that is wrong (laughs) because then that's misinforming the audience. So I I will always pick people up on that. But if people ring up and we disagree, but they're thoughtful and they've got evidence for what they're saying and they just have a different experience and worldview than me, I actually love that. We we can get into a conversation then. But of course, the, the conversations that get clipped up tend not to be those ones so if you listened in for the whole two hours you would you wouldn't get that experience just to reassure people that they wouldn't be going off and Natasha's just shouting at people for two hours that's that's not representative of the show but I think um what I consider myself to be 
very privileged. And I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, that so I'm of mixed ethnic heritage, but most people, particularly now that there's this trend for um, getting lip fillers and sort of white girls making themselves look more mixed, people tend to assume I'm white. Um, I also, I'm bisexual, but I'm married to a man. Um, I have a mental illness, which means technically I'm disabled, but it's invisible. So if you imagine that, like, if you're, if you're a kind of straight, wealthy, white, cisgender man, you've got five, size five feet, and those are the only shoes that are made, right? And if you're a woman and all of those, those things apply, you, you're allowed to wear one size five shoe, but you have to hop, right? <laughs> but then if you're a person of color, or you're gay, or you're trans, or you're living in poverty, you've got size seven feet, and there are no shoes for you, and you have to walk around barefoot. I think I've got size six feet, so I can squeeze myself into the size five shoe. And there's privilege that comes with that because no one's pointing at me going, you're barefoot, but I'm really uncomfortable a lot of the time. And that is um, difficult sometimes, but it also gives me an enormous amount of privilege because I think where I am, I can relate to so many different groups of people and be, you know, when you were talking about bringing the perspective of young people to their parents being that bridge. I think that's my role in life is just to be a bridge between (laughs) different perspectives. And um, on LBC, obviously anybody can call up and I don't know what they're going, they're going to say. So it's, it's perfect. It's just my dream job. I love it so much. Oh, that's awesome. And you know, that comes across, you know, that comes across on the show. I listen on a, on a Saturday, I've, we've got a routine where I'm sorry, I'm going to waffle now, but we've got a routine where on a Saturday, my wife will take the kids up seven o'clock's bedtime. So wife take the kids up and I'll put the tea on and I'll put your show on and sit with my coloring book and uh, yeah. And, and, you know, see what, see what there is to listen to, see what comes out. Oh, amazing. Yeah. But you kind of, um, you just touched on it a little bit there of, you know, again, being that, that bridge and something that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment, actually, particularly with regards to mental health is the kind of is the echo chamber around mental health, specifically my own is what I think about and how the reason I started this podcast is because when I was really poorly, I happened to see something on Instagram of someone talking and it just made me think, Oh, hang on a minute. That guy's describing me. And before that, I didn't really know anything about this sort of stuff. And that's where it it came from. That's where the idea first formed. And the plan was always to try and get this podcast into basically that version of me or other versions of me, get that into people's ears. And that's a really challenging part about what I'm trying to do, because I know I can put a post up on social media, I can announce an episode and everyone's going to go, oh, wow, that's brilliant. But a lot of those people will already know about your work or they'll have already read Claire's book. You know, how do we get it into the the ears of the people that really, um, you know, have a more of a a need to hear it almost. And I suppose where that bridge is and having a platform like LBC and, and a social media, because you have got a big social media following as well. I suppose that puts you in a great position to, to cross over and make people, whether it's mental health or other societal stuff, but maybe get people to think slightly differently or reach that one person who's harder to reach. That's exactly right. And I think I actually, I had spent a long time in an echo chamber because my social media following before I joined LBC was very left-leaning and we'd been discussing these issues for so long that the conclusions that we'd arrived at uh, seemed obvious to us and then I would say something on LBC that I thought everybody thinks that 
and be challenged by somebody who, for whom that had never occurred before and they found it completely outrageous. And I think that's important. It's important to step outside of your slipstream. Like I say, the, the only thing that I won't allow is somebody who's just picked up, you know, we've got this war on woke thing where anything now that people don't like, they go, that's woke. And I won't allow people to say that without giving me a definition of what they think woke is and why they think it's bad. You know, I, I, I want people to think about what they're saying. And sometimes people, they're really exercised. They, they are incredibly opinionated, but they've never thought about why. And I think, why have you allowed yourself to be whipped up into this state of anger about something that either doesn't affect you, or if it does, it affects you for the better? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because that's how we change, right? That's how we change. When we change, the conversation can change. So I suppose it's like being the change you want to see in the world and all that, you know, all that hippie stuff. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it all these um, experience, like a mixture of your own experience that work in schools, the things that you talk about on the radio? Is this the kind of stuff that's um, started to feed into the book that you're about to bring out, Natasha? Because that's coming in the summer, isn't it? And I'll remember, it's, actually, it's out on my birthday. So um, there you go. And my mum listens to every episode. So mum, if you're listening, there you go. You can, <laughs> she can pre-order it for me. Job done. Um, but because I've read the synopsis on the on the internet and um, there's, a, there's a lot going on, you know, there's, a, there's a, a lot going on in that story, isn't there? But how did... Um, how did that process, well, let's start with fiction. Why did you decide to, um, to do something in the fiction world, Natasha? I've always wanted to write a novel and I was never sure if I would be able to. I, I did English at university and I used to love creative writing at school. And it was one of those ambitions that I had on my kind of bucket list, but it's a completely different skill set to writing nonfiction. It, I, the way I describe it to people is I say, is the difference between playing piano and guitar. You know, it's all music, but it's a very different skill set to play those two instruments. But then when we were in the very first lockdown, schools didn't have the capacity at that stage to have speakers in digitally because they didn't think they would need to. And so literally all of my work was cancelled. And I thought, if I don't write it now, I never will. And, and initially I started writing it just for myself because th there was this thing called the, the great acquisitions freeze, which, which basically meant because of the uncertainty around the pandemic, unless you're, you know, a best-selling author or really famous, no one's going to pick up your book. So I thought I'll just write it for me. But the more I, the more I fleshed out this character of Luella, who's the main character in the book, the more I thought there is a place for her within YA and, and, and the initial idea for it came from the focus groups that I did in schools. Teenage girls in particular were telling me there's a new sex and relationship education curriculum which talks about coercive control in romantic relationships. And they said that we think that's great, but actually what we would like is similar information in platonic friendships. How do we navigate that when we're not in a relationship with somebody and we have to see them every day? And having been to a girls' school myself, it's so subtle the the way that girls interact with each other. And it's a cliche, but I think it's a cliche for a reason. You know, I, I have three brothers. So I and and our mum raised us um, in a very gender neutral way as well. So I I I don't think they learned this so much as this is just an inherent difference, perhaps, that 
when boys are annoyed with each other, they say, and when girls are annoyed with each other, they, they internalize it and it comes out in these really passive aggressive ways and these really elaborate and slightly evil punishments that they, they dream up for each other. And so I wanted to address that, but I also didn't want it to be a like, oh, aren't women awful book? Because female friendship is also the best thing in the world. <laughs> you know, it can it can really mess with your mental health, but it can also be the thing that saves it. So I, I created this character of Luella who gets into a toxic friendship, but is also surrounded by this amazing sisterhood of, of women, her mum, her nan, um, another friend at school who she doesn't appreciate, but is really there for her, her therapist, her next door neighbor, all of these women who are supporting her. And um, that allows her to, to kind of uh, navigate that difficult time. So it's a, essentially a feminist book, which I very much wanted it to be. And then as I was writing it, this theme emerged about privilege, because I think conversations about race and privilege have been oversimplified online. And this happens with everything because, you know, no opinion worth having can be expressed in 280 characters. So, you know, that's fine. It happens with everything. But I think this idea about white privilege, of course it's a thing, yeah, but all it means is that any problems that you've got in your life are not the result of the color of your skin. It doesn't mean that you have no problems or that you're objectively privileged as compared to all people of color if you're white. And so I wanted to explore that. And I was inspired by a couple of things. First of all, the school that tried to end racism. I don't know if you've seen that documentary. No, no. It's so good. So that there is a girl in it who her mom is white and her dad is Middle Eastern. So she's kind of olivey skinned. And right at the beginning, they say, we want the white kids to go into the room next door and then the, the children of color to remain in here. We're going to split you into two focus groups. And this girl goes, I don't know where to go. And then the, the, I hate this word, but the BAME group um, say, no, no, you belong with us. And the smile on her face at being accepted because I got the impression that this wasn't just, I don't know where to go in this situation. It was, I don't know where I belong in the world. Yeah, kind of yeah. Um, so I kind of, I had her in my head. And then I, there's also another bit in the documentary where they're asked to bring in something that represents their culture. And the Muslim children are bringing in prayer mats and the children of African heritage are bringing in, um, you know, like jewelry and, and, and able to explain in these really um, engaging and elaborate ways, you know, th this is where this comes from and this is why we do this. And, and then the white British children were kind of like, well, this is the England flag. And this is a Bible. Um, and I don't really know what to say about that. And I thought, in a way, it's a privilege to have such a strong sense of who you are and such a strong sense of culture. That's a form of privilege. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, that, so that idea runs through the book. And then the other thing was I read a book by Natalie Morris called Mixed Other. 
And um, she, Natalie Morris, her dad is from the West Indies. I believe he's Jamaican and her mother is white. And the, one of the first points she makes is when people think of a mixed person, they think of me. But actually, if you think about it, there's infinite ways you can be mixed because there's, you know, any any combination of things. So she interviews 50 people of varying different backgrounds um, about their experiences of being mixed in the book. So Luella, my main character, her dad is from South Asia and her mom is white, but she doesn't know her dad. So she is one of those people that she, she has privilege in so far as she is lighter than a lot of mixed people, but she also has no idea where half of her comes from. She doesn't know who she is. And then the person she gets into a friendship with is her dad is from the West Indies and her mum is, is white. So she's mixed in the more classic sense. She's darker. She's got very curly hair. She experiences racism, but she knows who she is. And it's about the dynamic between these two characters. And whilst the way that Aretha, the, the, um, the friend, behaves towards Luella are awful. There are reasons why she behaves in that way. You understand. And a lot of it is, is racial trauma, you know, and it's, it's, it's come out in, in her in, in that way. Um, and that was something that emerged as I was writing the book. Right. Um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't expect it to be about that. Yeah, that's fantastic. There's so much going on there, right? There's so yeah. much to to talk about. Yeah, but I, this whole idea about identity is is massive in in mental health, isn't it? And quite often it comes from not understanding where we come from or losing identity or a certain part of ourselves that l- leads us on to have those, um, you know, to have problems with our our mental health. And it's interesting you mentioned that it was the friendship angle that the people, the children you spoke to wanted to focus on, because when you're, when you're young, those friendship groups are everything. That's the, that's everything, isn't it? When you can't go to your parents or you don't feel like you can approach your teachers and you just feel that, that whole teenage, you know, alienation thing that like, yeah, your friendship groups are so important, aren't they? They're absolutely, um, absolutely everything. So yeah, that just makes perfect sense that people would want to, to know more about that. And it was one of the characters got um, an anxiety disorder as well, Natasha, is that right? Yeah. Luella, the main character has panic attacks and um, she also develops, it's not an eating disorder. It could develop into one. Um, She develops kind of body image issues and engages in restrictive behaviors around food and exercise throughout the book. And I worked really hard on that. I, I, I run a campaign called the Mental Health Media Charter, which is all looking at um, the way that mental illness and mental health is discussed in newspapers and uh, in broadcast and whether it's responsible and genuinely educational and perpetuating unhelpful stereotypes. So I, I really wanted my writing to reflect what I've learned from running that campaign and trying to make it realistic, but not triggering is a really fine line yeah. to walk. Um, but I, I think generally that the rule is focus on why is not how's. So if you're, if you're talking about a, a mental health issue with a strong behavioral element, like self-harm, like eating disorders, if you're focusing on weights and measurements and, and you know, what people are eating, calorie counts, or what form of self-harm they're engaging in, you're not only triggering the reader, 
you're not really telling them anything about the nature of the illness because that's what they're doing, not why they're doing it. You yeah. need to know what's going on in their head to better understand it. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really love the idea of having, um, having it as part of a character, but with loads yeah. of other stuff going on. Because quite yeah. often we find that if someone has got a mental illness or any sort of diagnosis, that's like the main focus of everything. But in reality, most of us who have got a diagnosis of something are still like, you know, still go to the shop, still go to work, still do all this stuff. It's just something that is is part of us. And I really like that. And the idea of fiction just makes it so accessible, doesn't it? You know, it's just on a yeah. shelf for people to read and people to um, to explore. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted people to root for Luella and I I think they will and I think they will also I, well I'm hoping that they will understand why Aretha behaves the way that she does because uh, uh, the other thing that I wanted to convey with the book is that if somebody is going to be a toxic presence in your life or if you're going to create a toxic dynamic between the two of you they don't turn up with a neon sign above their head going hey i'm toxic <laughs> you know there are there are reasons why you find that person attractive you know not sexually but kind of a, you want that person in your life and there's there's a lot of um, positive aspects to them so i want the reader to fall in love with the reader and then go, oh, okay, these two should not be friends. That That's the journey I hope that they they go on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you know, it sounds awesome. It sounds really good. So um, yeah, I'll make sure all the links and stuff are in the episode Thank notes you. for people to, uh, <laughs> people to check out. And it, you know, it is all those things, isn't it? it all those things when we talk about the mental health conversation, it is all the things that you mentioned there. It's not, we tend to think of it as mental health when people are struggling with a mental illness, particularly, or just, you know, periods of mental ill health, that it's almost like separate. You know that it's just like a just like a thing, but often the thing it's the things that affect the thing. I'm not making a lot of sense here. I'm not being clear, but it is those the things in your life, the friendships, the relationships, the identity, plus the pressures at school, plus the way that you view the world, plus the way that the world views you and your place in it. And it's all these things that add up that just put us under so much pressure, isn't it? In the in the modern world, I do a, an exercise in one of my classes where we create a character. And we look at what are the sources of stress and anxiety in their life. And we imagine that they're coping well. So we say, okay, what, what are they using to mediate these feelings of stress and anxiety? And we look at it all as a whole. And then I say, okay, what would we need to take away for this person to start to struggle? So say they're part of a sports club and they, that's where they're getting their sense of belonging. And that's also really helpful for them to... Um, you know, endorphin creating hobbies are, are, are really good for our mental health. So we know that. Okay, now let's say that they injure their knee so they can't go to that sports club. So we take that away. Is that going to push them to crisis point? Because I think that's a much more useful understanding rather than going, someone was ill and then they were cured and oh, they lived happily ever after. So, you know, it's not how it works, is it? Yeah. And that, you know, just as, as something that initially seems quite small on the surface can then over time become become something big and just change the course of, um, of what's going on with that person. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Oh mate, it's been lovely to meet you this morning and thank you so much for your time, Natasha. I really, really appreciate it. I enjoyed that. It was brilliant. And I'm really looking forward to reading that, reading that book. So yeah, that'll be, I'll be doing that on my birthday on your release date. That'll be, uh, <laughs> that'll be what I'm up to. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, cheers, Natasha.
Thank you for listening from the Proper Mental Podcast. Please like and subscribe. The Space Star.